following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So this morning, uh, we're carrying on our series in the Gospel of John. And if you've been tracking with us in this series over the course of the year, it's taken us a fair amount of time, and uh, we've still got a wee way to go, but we're, this is what we do at Shore each year. We take a book of the Bible, and we work our way through it. We spend good time in it and, and journey with this and try to get a sense of, of the whole picture. And hopefully, if you've been tracking with us through John's Gospel, uh, you might be starting to catch some of the main themes, the theme of new creation in particular, that we've been talking about, the way Jesus brings God's new creation into the world, and maybe some of the images and the metaphors in John are becoming familiar to you. Uh, This morning, we are in John chapter 15. So if you want to uh, turn over there, this is uh, a pretty familiar passage of Scripture for many people, and it's located in the middle of a long conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on the night before he dies. Okay, so that's where we are. We're we're right at the end of Jesus' life, in a sense, the night before he dies. And John's gospel, more than any of the other gospels, uh, give us long sections of Jesus' teaching and conversation. Uh, John doesn't focus as much on the, the works of Jesus or the actions of Jesus, but he gives us long stretches of, of Jesus' words, a lot of the words of Jesus and John, which takes us into the heart of Jesus' message and his teaching. And uh, John 15 is like that. It's in the middle of a long conversation that Jesus has with his disciples after they've just shared the Last Supper together. So that's where we are in the story. And uh, we'll read uh, this passage in John 15, the first 17 verses, and uh, this will be familiar to many of you, those of you that have been around a church uh, for some time probably have heard this. So here we go, uh, John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that, your joy, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, 
fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So uh, in the Gospel of John, if, if you have been tracking with us, you'll notice that Jesus so often uses images and pictures. So here we have this, this picture of the vine, but through this gospel, there's been so many. Every time Jesus talks about himself, he's using a different image. He's using a different metaphor. He's talked about himself as the good shepherd. He's talked about himself as the door of the sheep pen or the door of the sheepfold, uh, as the light of the world, as the water of life. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and, and you'll receive life. He's talked about himself as the bread that comes down from heaven. Image after image, metaphor after metaphor. And hopefully what is becoming clear is that Jesus doesn't use these images just because they're useful pictures. He uses these images because they tap into Israel's story and they tap into the Old Testament. And each time there is this rich tapestry woven through the Old Testament of how this image is used and then it all builds to Jesus. So don't see him pulling metaphors out of thin air but rather using images that are already there, already in the story of our Bible up to this point and bringing them to fulfillment. That's exactly what he does with the image of the vine. It's not just a nice horticultural metaphor. Jesus is tapping into the grand story of Israel that culminates in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And to be honest, I'd never really looked at this. I'd never really looked into the background of this image of the vine in the Old Testament, but it's there. And it's powerful, and it provides a real backdrop to see what Jesus is saying in John 15. So I want to just jump back for a minute to a passage in the Old Testament and work back to John 15 from there. So keep your thumb in John 15. Just turn back for a second to Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, and there's a number of passages we could go to see the image of the vine or the vineyard being used. But here it is in Psalm 80 uh, in a powerful way, and and you'll see the connection here to John 15. In verse 8 of Psalm 80, the psalmist writes about God, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Now, in this passage, who is the vine? Israel. This is an image that's used to describe the way that God has uprooted Israel from slavery in Egypt and then planted Israel as a vine in the land of Canaan. And the roots, the branches of Israel as a vine have spread out through the land of Canaan. It's a beautiful metaphor to describe the settling of God's people in their own land. But then comes the bad news in verse 12. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the field feed on it. So God has taken away the defenses of this vine. He's allowed it to be damaged. He's allowed it to be plundered. He's allowed it to be virtually destroyed. Why? Well, the answer doesn't come in Psalm 80, but it comes in other parts of the Old Testament because Israel was a fruitless vine. Chosen by God and called by God, but Israel didn't bear the fruit that God wanted it to bear. The fruit of reflecting God's nature, reflecting God's character, especially the character of love that God desired Israel to be characterized by so that Israel would reflect God's love to the world. It's what God desired, that they would be a fruitful nation, bearing the fruit of love, that the whole world would see what Yahweh is like. And Israel failed in that calling, did not adequately reflect the love of God. So God allowed the nation to be judged uh, through being uh, plundered by other nations. But then comes the promise. And here, as you'll see the connection to John 15 here, verse 14. 
The psalmist prays, return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. There's a messianic promise. There's a connection to Jesus. So that the psalmist is saying, God, don't abandon this vine that you've planted, but from the root of this decimated plant, bring forth a new vine. Bring forth new life and do this through the sun. Israel in the Old Testament was the sun. That's really what the psalmist is praying. But do this through the sun, your precious son. Revive and restore the vine, the vine of Israel. Now, does that help you see what Jesus is saying in John 15? When, when Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine, what's he saying? I mean, he doesn't even say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. Because he's comparing himself with another vine, which was Israel, the vine of God, the vineyard of the Lord's planting. But Jesus says, now I am the true vine, and not a completely separate vine to Israel, but one that has come from the root, come from the root of the vine of Israel, and from that root, damaged though it was, decimated though it was, God has raised up this new vine. From out of the nation of Israel, God has raised up the true vine, the Messiah, Jesus. And just as Israel was planted for the glory of the Lord to bear fruit, Jesus is, a, is planted and established by God to be, to be fruitful, to reveal God's character, to bear fruit for God's glory. Jesus is taking on the mantle of Israel and the calling of Israel as the vine of the Lord. But as Jesus talks, this metaphor of the vine in John 15 gets extended out so that Jesus isn't just talking about himself as an individual person, but he says in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. So this is not just about how Jesus as an individual person is the vineyard of God, bearing fruit for God, but now we're part of this. We're drawn into this as disciples of Jesus. We are now grafted into this vine. We become part of the vine through Jesus. We're part of this story. Jesus says, I am the vine. I'm, I'm the main part of the plant here, but you are the branches. And I'm bringing you in so that through me, you might bear fruit. And what that means in the context of this whole story is that we have the privilege now of being part of the people of God, part of true spiritual Israel, part of the people of God in the world. And just as God planted Israel in the land of Canaan, God plants us as a community in the world to reflect his goodness, to reflect his glory, to reflect his love to all people, to all nations, to be a fruitful vine. But only as we remain anchored and planted and rooted and established in Christ and in his love. And so then the question for us becomes, how do we do this? How do we, how do we bear fruit? How do we avoid Israel's error of being fruitless? How do we become a fruitful vine? And typically what we do here. As Christians, when we think about this metaphor of bearing fruit, how can I bear fruit in my life? We think about the fruit of the Spirit, right? And we think about Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, on the list goes. And we think, okay, I, I've got to bear, that's what I'm supposed to do, bear this fruit. And so we choose maybe a handful of those that we don't really possess in our lives, don't really reflect who we are, and we think, okay, I, I've, got to, I've got to bear fruit. I've got to, I've got to be loving. I've got to be joyful. 
and I really want to be peaceful. All right, let's start with those three. So we go out from here, service finishes on a Sunday, and you all go out really, really, really fired up and committed, and we're going to be fruitful people this week. We're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to be loving and joyful and peaceful people. I am going to be so loving. I'm going to be loving towards the most annoying person in my life. I'm going to love them if it kills me. I'm going to be joyful if it kills me. I'm going to be so joyful. I am going to work furiously hard to be at peace. I'm going to put every ounce of energy into being peaceful, and I am going to produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life this week. And we get all fired up about this. We go out, and what happens? Well, generally, in my case, you can get about 24 hours out of that. Uh, you, 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 prob- you possibly, at best, have a good rest of, the, rest of the day on Sunday and maybe a good Monday. And, and that's about as far as the engine of willpower is going to take you. You get that about that far. And then what happens on Tuesday? You realize people are way more annoying than you thought they were. <laughs> far, far, far harder to love. And you realize there's far more to be grumpy about and far less to be joyful about than you ever imagined possible. And peace is this kind of elusive thing that is impossible to actually grasp and it never really settles in your heart. And so you get depressed and frustrated and you arrive at church next Sunday feeling like, why did I bother? This is an impossible goal, the fruit of the Spirit, and that's just three of them. Failed miserably to live up to even my own expectations of godliness and and holiness. But that's so often the recipe of spiritual growth, and that's what we tend to do with this metaphor. We focus on the fruit itself. But here's what I want to show you in this passage. Just look at, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, look at these 17 verses and see. There is nowhere in this passage where Jesus directly commands us to bear fruit. Just look at it and tell me I'm wrong. There is nowhere that Jesus directly commands us to go and bear fruit. Yes, he wants us to be fruitful, absolutely. Yes, he says we've been appointed to bear fruit. Clearly the Father wants us to be fruitful, no argument there. But there is no direct commandment from Jesus here to bear fruit. And by the way, in Galatians 5, it's exactly the same, where Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. He does not then say, now go and bear this fruit. He describes the fruit of the Spirit, but there's no, there are direct commands in here, but that's not one of them. I think Jesus is choosing his words very carefully because the irony of spiritual growth is this, that we bear fruit by not focusing on bearing fruit. We bear fruit by focusing on something else, and this is what Jesus really comes back to time and time again. There are three words here that just keep on coming out of Jesus' mouth. Remain in me. That's what he wants us to do. He doesn't keep saying, go bear fruit, go bear fruit, be more loving, be more kind, be more patient. He says, remain in me. I think it's 11 times that word remain, or some of your trans- translations have the word abide. That's, I think, an even better word. There's still a richness to that word, isn't there? Abide in me. The Greek word behind those translations is the word meno. And meno really doesn't have that much to do with doing, it's much more about being. It's a word that has to do with being a certain type of person, not doing certain types of things. It's not about a whole lot of furious activity. It's not about striving and trying and exercising willpower and self-determination. It's about, the word literally means to stay put. It's about as close an English translation as you can get, you know, stay put. And in the context of what Jesus is saying, he means stay put in me, to dwell in one place, to stay to abide in one space. And for us, that space is Christ. 
to abide in Christ. Meno is not so much about going out there and trying. It's about staying connected to Jesus. It's not about cultivating a whole lot of activity in our lives. It is about cultivating a relationship with Jesus and nurturing that relationship. And Jesus says when you do that and when you learn to meno, when you learn to abide, bearing fruit will be as natural for you as it is for a grapevine to bear grapes when it is well planted and well watered. Branches don't have to try really hard to bear fruit. They bear fruit when they are connected, healthily connected to the vine. So what Jesus says, I want you to focus on abiding in me. I want you to focus on remaining in me. Here's the thing with meno. I think it's for us in this community, I'm talking specifically to our context, I think meno is a bit of a mixed blessing. I think on the one hand, it's very freeing that it releases us from all this focus on striving and trying and self-effort, which gets us nowhere and is such a weak engine for spiritual growth. It, it releases, Meno says, no, that is not the path of spiritual growth. It's not just about trying harder. But on the other hand, Meno abiding, it asks of us something that I think is very difficult for us to give. It does ask something of us that's, I think, very hard for 21st century Aucklanders to give, and that is time. There is an inseparable connection between meno and time. You cannot abide quickly. You cannot abide in a hurry. You cannot abide hastily. Abiding takes time. And that's hard, isn't it? Some of you are like, I'd just rather have the striving. I'd rather have the trying. At least I can try to be loving and might have a couple of shots at it. But time is incredibly hard, especially for those of us that live in a big city like Auckland that sucks every last ounce of time out of us, doesn't it? I'm realizing this more and more. This city is, a, is an absolute time suck for us. It's the nature of our frantically busy, fast-paced lives. I was talking to a guy yesterday, a friend, who's just moved to Hamilton, and he said just a noticeable difference in the pace of life. He said, I've got my weekends back. You know, the, the work-life balance is so much better for him. Now, the downside of that is you've got to live in Hamilton. But, you know, on, on, the, on the positive side, I love, I love living in Auckland, but, man, it will suck every last minute of time out of you. It, I mean, we, many of us have insanely busy or committed family lives, very pressurized working lives, busy social lives, and yet here we are as disciples being called to abide. It's very hard. We're residents of a city that pushes us faster and faster, and yet we are citizens of a kingdom that calls us to slow down. And if you want to be a healthy and mature and fruitful disciple, you are at some point going to have to swim upstream from the culture of the city. You are at some point going to have to swim upstream from our culture in general and the fast-paced life of modern 21st century Western culture, and you're going to have to learn to slow down. That's what abiding is. I think that's why so many Christians never get there, never really bear a lot of fruit because they struggle to truly slow down and spend time. This is a relationship we're talking about with Jesus, one personal being with another, and that requires time. It requires intentional time. It requires commitment to a set of practices that we find very, very difficult. Stopping. Stillness. 
slowing, silence, and solitude. Even talking slowly feels weird because we feel like everything should be fast, so we pack as much into the service as we possibly can. But we've got to learn to slow down. Fast pace is okay in some areas and for some seasons, but we have to, as Christians, take Jesus at his word. And if we want to grow and we want to be fruitful, we have to take time and spend time with Christ. Unhurried time with Jesus. Not grabbing a quick verse of scripture before you go to sleep, not a quick prayer before you rush out the door in the morning, but unhurried time as a regular practice of our discipleship. And Jesus fleshes this out for us a bit when he says, remain in my love. He doesn't just say, remain in me. He does at times change the language and say, remain in my love. I think one of the core practices of a growing Christian is that they are taking time to abide deeply in the love of Jesus. And I know that sounds so incredibly simple, just to abide in the love of God. But spending time reflecting on the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for you is one of the most vital things to your spiritual growth. It might seem disconnected. It might seem like, but shouldn't I just be out there trying to love people and trying to be joyful? Well, yes, it's good to pursue those things. But the the time you take to deeply drink in the love of God for you is directly proportionate to your spiritual growth, remaining in Christ's love. I honestly believe that. I honestly believe for me, if I truly grasped the love of God, the love of Christ, I think my life would be absolutely different. I think my relationships would be different. I think my character would be different. I think I I would be a more fruitful person if I truly grasped the love of Christ. My head gets it as much as we can, but my heart has not yet fully apprehended it. And I think that gap between our head understanding the love of Christ and our heart fully receiving the love of Christ is the gap in which we are called to abide. And that's the journey of discipleship towards drinking in the deep love of Christ for us. That's why in Ephesians, when Paul prays for the Ephesians, he doesn't pray that they would go off and do a whole lot of good works, but he prays that they would grasp how long and wide and high and deep is what? The love of Christ. So that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul knew there's a direct relationship between your ability to grasp and the depths of your being the extent of the Father's love for you and you being filled to the measure of all the fullness of God as a mature Christian. So don't ever feel like time spent simply being still before God and dwelling in His love and soaking yourself in scriptures that remind you of God's love is ever wasted time. It is not. It is perhaps the most productive, if I can use that word, thing that you can do for your spiritual growth. The most efficient thing that you can do For your growth in the vine is to drink deeply of the love of Christ. That is abiding. That is remaining in the love of Christ and letting that be your all-consuming reality. But Jesus takes this further and he leads us into a second command here which is also very connected to abiding. Abiding is not just something that we are called to do with Jesus on an individual basis. We're also called to abide together. We're also called to abide with one another and to abide in one another's presence. And this is deeply connected to our abiding in Christ. 
Jesus puts it this way, in, down in verse 11. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And he comes back to this time and time again, love each other, love each other, love each other. Part of abiding is learning to love each other. That might sound like it runs against the grain of what we've just been talking about, that being fruitful is not just about going out there and trying to be a loving person. But I think what Jesus is saying is this, as we learn to abide deeply in Christ and abide deeply in his love, we are more empowered and we are more able to love one another and to truly abide in healthy ways with each other. That out of the overflow of Christ's love in our heart, we're able to abide with each other. And that in some way, abiding with each other and loving each other then becomes part of our spiritual growth. The whole, the whole thing is, is circular and, and cyclical. And that there's a deep connectedness between our relationships with each other and our relationship with Christ. As we love each other in practical, healthy ways, we are, in some sense, remaining in Christ and practicing abiding in Him. There's a lot of things that we could talk about under the heading of loving each other. It's a broad, broad topic. But let's just keep going on this theme of time that we're talking about. Abiding always takes time. So if we're going to abide with each other, it's going to take time as well. It's going to take time spent with each other. And again, this is difficult for us as city people who connect and then disconnect from each other very, very quickly. I'm reading a great book at the moment called Slow Church. And the book immediately caught my attention. Just the title and the subheading alone, worth the price of the book. Slow Church. And the subheading is Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. It's great. You can't even say that fast. It's just great. And it's so refreshing because so much of what is out there in terms of church literature and ministry uh, leadership books, it is very much 10 steps to this and five steps to that and how to grow big and grow fast and strategize and, and develop a very well-oiled machine as a church. And this book really moves against that by saying, in a lot of ways, the church has kind of capitulated to this frenetically paced culture. And we need to learn to slow down because maybe some of the ways that we're trying to do church are running against the current of spiritual growth and are counterproductive to growing in Christ. We need to learn to slow down with one another and build community in unhurried ways. One of the things they talk about in the book is a vow that is often made within the context of a monastery. Now, they're not saying that we should all go and be monks and nuns, but they're drawing out of, that, out of that world this vow, and it's called a vow of stability. Among the vows that you'd make as a monk or a nun, you make this vow of stability, a vow to be in stable, long-term relationships with others in your faith community. And they, they quote here from a vow of stability out of a... a an abbey, a monastery in the United States. Let me just read this to you. We vow to remain all of our life with our local community. They're talking about the community of faith, the church, or the, or the convent or monastery. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself, and the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love. 
acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences, forgiving. Isn't that great? It's really refreshing to read that, isn't it? It just seems to move in a different direction to so much of what church ends up being about and even the ways that we practice community in very fast and often very shallow ways. Here is a call to stability. Stability in relationships, stability in the context of a church community. Now, you may not make a formal, official vow of stability, but I want to encourage you and challenge you, are you willing to make an unspoken vow of stability? within the context of our church community, but more specifically in the context of people around you, people that you know within this church, people you are in community with or could be in community with, are you willing to make a vow of stability to them that says, come what may, I'm binding myself to these people. I'm, I'm going to resist the winds of change and the constant urge to look for something better or to move from social group to social group or church to church, or click to click, whenever things get difficult or challenging. I'm going to vow to this group of people that as long as the Lord allows, I'll connect myself to them and covenant with them to journey through life with them. And if I get to the end of my life, and I've simply journeyed with this small group of people over the decades, I will be content. And I don't need to search for something else, because this is where the Lord has placed me. Lest you think this is just an argument to try and keep you in this church, let me say, I think this also applies to those that may have come from other churches too hastily or too quickly or disconnected yourselves in ways that may not have been healthy. I think we all have to take stock when we jump and disconnect ourselves from communities or from other people. Are we really practicing community? Are we really practicing abiding with each other? If you're not in any kind of community context, then perhaps the challenge for you is to simply take some steps to be in community with other people. I think deeply we long for it. Often we're just not willing to take the steps to actually make it happen. There are are people in our community now looking to start life groups, looking for others to come around them. Is that a step that you could take into community? And then over time, to commit yourself to those people. To say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to be known by these people. And to get to know them, to take some steps to know them. Not just to show up and do a Bible study with them, but to get to know them. I'm willing to share my joy and pain with them. And I want to share in theirs to the degree that they'll let me. I want to serve others. I want to be served by them. I want to, to the best of my imperfect ability, I want to practice love. And I want to allow myself to be loved. So it's always a two-way street. Are you really willing to be in that space within our faith community? Are you willing to be in community? Are you willing to make a vow of stability towards others? That's what it means to abide with Christ and with one another. And lastly, let me just say one final thing about abiding. Abiding takes time over the course of your life. And it's going to take time to really bear spiritual fruit. Often we get discouraged, I know I do, because we don't see enough growth, we don't see real spiritual fruit in our lives, but abiding takes time. I remember years ago I read a book called How People Grow, and it sort of each chapter by chapter went through all the ingredients and spiritual growth, here's what you do if you want to grow as a Christian, and a lot of them we could list and name, you know, spending time in scripture and praying and obedience and resisting temptation, but you know what the last chapter was? Time. Time. Uh, It was called Waiting for the Harvest. The practice of time. And it was one of those things where I never would have listed that on any list of things that help you grow spiritually. But when you see it there, you realize, of course, time. Because we can't control that. And so we feel uncomfortable about it. 
But spiritual growth is going to take time over the course of your life. God's not in any particular hurry with you. That's not very comfortable, is it? We wish that he would hurry up sometimes, but he's not in any particular hurry. He let the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years before settling them in the promised land. He waited till Jesus was 30 before launching his ministry. He's not in a great hurry. He's a patient God. He is the patient gardener. And he is working and he is bearing fruit. But some of you just need to let yourselves off the hook because you feel frustrated and discouraged though you're not seeing enough growth and enough project progress. You just need to relax and allow God to be God. Yes, we need to take some steps and to learn to abide. But you also need to be patient with God and with yourself. Abiding takes time. It takes time with Jesus and it takes time over the whole course of our lives. So learn to be patient and wait for the harvest to come. So as you, as you step back from this and think about that image of the vine and the branches, I want to encourage you just to ask this question of your own life. What kind of branch are you? How healthy are you? How connected are you as a branch to the vine who is Christ? Are you living in a deep connectedness to Jesus and to one another that's over time placing you in a space where you're able to bear spiritual fruit? Are you kind of disconnected? Are you a withering branch? You're not really drawing nutrients from the vine. You're not really drawing the life you need from Jesus. And so you're not really fruitful. What one step are you willing to take to abide more deeply in Jesus? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to move against the pace of culture and life and the city? Are you willing to make it a habit to spend regular time with Jesus? Focus time intentionally and consciously in the presence of God, in his word, abiding and letting him speak of his love to you. Are you willing to be in community with other people, abide with others in this church or somewhere else where you can be in community and take a vow of stability towards brothers and sisters in Christ and be with them for the long haul? Are you willing to be patient with yourself? to trust that God is at work and the work that he's begun in you, he will be faithful to carry it on to completion. Are you willing to relax in that and rest in that and trust that God is at work? I pray that we would learn to abide deeply in Christ, that we may truly live fruitful lives, be a fruitful church community to the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we sit here now in stillness and in quietness. And, and I really sense, Jesus, that many of us, most of us, have a great desire to abide in you. We long for it, Jesus, but we know that waiting for us outside these doors is a hectic life that seems to, seems to work against any intention that we have of abiding. And it seems, Jesus, sometimes like it just takes so much effort and striving just to abide, which seems so wrong. But God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us to abide. Teach us the practice of stopping and quietening our soul, instilling our thoughts and centering our hearts on you. It's so hard to do, Jesus. 
Even when our bodies can stop, our minds are still racing. But Jesus, we pray that you would teach us to abide. Teach us to abide with you. And teach us and show us how we can abide with one another. Just place before us now, I pray, Jesus. If you're nudging us in this, if you're prompting us to take a step, I pray you'd you'd stir our hearts, Jesus. Show us how in the midst of our busy lives, we can abide in you. We thank you that you are the vine. Thank you that we're not branches out on our own, but we are in the vine and our life is in you. Help us to remain in you that we might bear fruit for your glory. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, Or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.